Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. This week's podcast episode is proudly sponsored by Excel Moto. That's the one-stop motorcycle shop for all things biking related. Whether you need tools to work on your bike, bits to repair on your bike, and also biking gear and everything in between, including camping gear. So if you're looking for anything biking related, go and check them out. That's excelmoto.com. I will leave the details in the written description. All right. Oh, it's been a busy week in the best possible way for me. I just got back about a day and a half ago from in total, and bear in mind I had about two or three days gap when I got to Cornwall, 1,400 miles on the bike in the space of, I left on Wednesday and I got back on Monday, so five days. And it was just such an incredible week. I'd fixed up the Bonneville, done everything to it, changed the brake pads, front and rear, and I rode down on a two-day trip down to Cornwall. The first day was about 280 miles, so I rode down to the coast. I then stayed in a campsite, which was 10 pounds a night, took my wingman of the road, and then I did the second half of the ride on day two over to Cornwall, went to a really cool bike hangout, a new place called Project 83. Go and check them out if you've never been. And it got me on to, to thinking, before I took on this 500 mile journey, one way, 1,000 miles round trip, what's the best way to do it? Should I do it all in one slog, which would probably be about a nine hour ride in total, or should I turn it into an adventure? I'm not under any time constraints. But the problem is, if I'm looking at accommodation, and I'm sure a lot of you will sympathize with this, Accommodation costs, they're just getting so eye-wateringly expensive. I know the UK is like this everywhere. It doesn't matter if you go to Ipswich or London or Cornwall. Prices of accommodation, you really do need, it seems like, a, you know, Airbnb, whatever, 120 a night, 100 a night. It seems to be 100 a night is now the minimum. Uh, and that changes things. And I won't go into too much detail because it will be on this week's YouTube video. I did a two-part road trip special. But it changes in your mind how often you can go on a road trip, a multi-day road trip biking, because you start thinking, oh, bugger, you know, this is going to cost a lot of money if I'm staying for two nights in a hotel. And if you can do it, if you can, you know, get the tent on the back of your bike, strap everything on, it means that it opens up a whole world of biking that maybe financial constraints meant that you couldn't actually do. And that's what I found with doing this, this road trip. The tent, although maybe it's more comfortable in a hotel, the tent allows us that level of freedom that, that maybe is, is slightly out of reach from a financial point of view. And that's the magic of it. It's... Yes, it's going to be less comfortable. And I, I sl slightly overlooked this when I went on my Spanish trip. Sometimes only seeing the negatives with the camping. But the positives it gives, it allows us to travel more. And that, that is the magic of camping. Plus the feeling of freedom. Knowing you've got everything attached to the back of your bike. Well, that in itself is magical. I'll, I'll move on. Oh, I, one other thing, actually. Literally the day after I got back from my thousand mile trip to Cornwall, 
I went to Caffeine and Machine with a few friends and that was about a 350 mile trip in total. That was a huge adventure as well. Um, and that's a, a very cool petrolhead place as well. You know, these places in the UK, they're, they're springing up all over the place. Right, let's get down to it. First of all, I want to go through a few, a few comments and messages I've had over the week. This is from an American called Rick. I was just talking about my MOT that I did. That's the annual check that you do in the UK. And he said, Freddie, what's an MOT? And I said, it's an annual check in the UK for cars and motorbikes you have to do. It's a legal requirement. Once a year, has to pass at least a minimum requirement. For example, the brakes have to be fine. Can't have too high emissions. Things like this. Um, and Rick carries on. He said, we don't have to get our bikes inspected in New Jersey any longer since 2010. It's up to the riders to keep them in good running order. It's, it's fascinating the way it goes. It's not necessarily that it's, it's going backwards in parts of the US, but it's just a, a fascinating observation that they felt that it's, it's, you know, you can trust bike riders. I guess they don't have this for car drivers but for bike riders, in, since 2010, they no longer seem it or deem it necessary to have the annual check for motorbikes. It's fascinating. Really, really interesting. I'd love to know the reasoning. Clearly, they've, they've looked at the, the analytics, they've looked at the data and deemed that it's just, it, it's not necessary to, to have bikes checked once, once a year. I know that bikers in general, and I know it's a generalization, they do look after their bikes noticeably better than, um, than the majority of car drivers. I think by our nature, bikers are passionate about biking. So we will, it's our pride and joy, usually, the motorbike. So I, uh, I understand it from that point of view. It's fascinating hearing, though, that for the past 12 years, there have been no annual checks in New Jersey. Have a listen to this. This is, uh, this is from a guy who, who rode over from Ibiza over to the UK uh, on a 20, I think around about a 20-year-old Triumph Bonneville T100. And I like this because I was chatting away to him and he said that initially he was, he was a bit unsure if, if a 20-year-old Triumph Bonneville T100, you know, would be able to do such an adventure like this? Is it just going to be breaking down all the time? Is a 20-year-old motorcycle still relevant for long-distance touring? And I can say, because I know he's made it, he made it without even the slightest hiccup. And I love hearing stuff like this because, especially with everything going on in the world now, fear of financial crises, things like that, it shows that, yes, you know, we progress with, with engines and reliability, but you don't have to go out there and get the absolute latest model to get enough reliability and enough everyday usability to go on these huge tours. You don't need a huge budget. You know, you can get a 20-year-old bike, probably looking at a carved bike. You get a 20-year-old bike for, you know, £1,000 plus. Something like that. I'm sure, and I'll have a look if I've got time before the end of the podcast, I'm sure you can go out and get a bike between 1,000 and 1,800 pounds that's going to be genuinely good enough to head off and do some multi-thousand mile tours of Europe, Australia, US, wherever you may be. And they can be reliable enough. 
you know, any bike from the, the year 2000, for example, it's going to be reliable enough. You know, if you're pushing back to the 70s and 80s, yes, maybe reliability will be an issue. But, you know, 2000 onwards, I'd say all bikes are built to a, a fairly, fairly superb standard from then on. Inspiring. I love that. Frankie, thank you. I'm moving on. Um, right, let's have a look. Oh, I like this. Just kind of a throwback. Uh, Freddie, these types of bikes, referring to Yawas, the Czech bike, these types of bikes uh, I started on, old Yawas, M MZ, Simpsons, and IZH. I'm guessing this must be a Russian rider. Back in the good old days, no license, no insurance, no gear, only helmet and tons of smiles. It's funny, but I think I had more joy riding those bikes than the modern bikes today. And this, this actually leads on quite nicely from, um, from Frankie, who rode over to, to London, because, you know, you can get the latest and greatest, and new bikes are much better than old bikes, but sometimes that simplicity not just in terms of no technology, no rider aids, but also the lower powered, lighter vehicles. There's, there's a magic to those, to the simplicity of it, to knowing that you can push it to the limit and you're not going to be bankrupt if something blows up and you're not worried about different electronics stopping working and, and, and messing up. It's just a bike that you have to save for a few weeks for. It's not gonna cost more than a thousand pounds or so. And you don't really have any worries in the world with something like that, with a bike like that. It's, it's very special owning those kinds of vehicles and it's a very, very different ownership experience owning a thousand pound-ish plus bike as it is to owning, you know, a real statement bike, maybe a 12,000 pound plus bike, something like that. And I hear a lot of people talking about that and it does lead on to what quite a few people have been sending me in and telling me. I had a few older riders contacting me um, saying that they've gone the whole full circle, 360. You know, they start off on 100cc bikes and as we all do, you know, you graduate, you progress through the process up to 1,000cc plus bikes. Maybe you go for the BMW GS route 1250 or you go for the big Harley 1800, stuff like that. But then a lot of people after that, they, they find themselves going backwards to the, the smaller, simpler bikes. The Royal Enfield Interceptor is a good example of that. And this leads nicely into that. There's definitely a, not with everyone, but it's a significant shift from what I'm seeing. There is a shift from people going full circle and back to the simpler, slower, lower powered vehicles. Moving on to the last one here. This is, oh, now, this is an interesting one. Freddie, as for road safety, uh, those electric scooters or cars are more dangerous because pedestrians cannot hear them coming down the road. Silent vehicles increase dangerously people's safety. It is extremely important to hear traffic. This is a bit like the... And it's getting a bit old school and out of date almost now. I used to see this a lot more, but I think with new regulations, it's slightly disappearing. Loud pipes save lives. And 
I understand there's, there's a, a very large element of truth to that because if you can hear something coming from a quarter of a mile off or 200 metres off a, a motorbike with loud exhaust, you do, you hear it in your car or you hear it if you're another bike or even a pedestrian. It's a very, very good way to understand if something's coming. Monica, for example, she almost stepped into the road to her death about a week and a half ago. She was walking along and she didn't hear a car coming. Uh, it was an electric car, just walked straight into the road and the car had to genuinely do an emergency stop uh, to not hit her. So yes, I understand that the safety element from that point of view, but also my thinking slightly with this is we have to adapt. We have to understand that you can no longer rely on, on your hearing to, to guarantee that there's nothing coming to the left of right or right of you. We have to look. We now have to understand that we have to look to our left and right to see if anything's coming. And I think more than anything, it's just an adjustment in our mind that we have to make as opposed to, you know, I know they're synthesizing sound in, especially in cars, to create a sound to, to protect, protect pedestrian safety. I know that they're having to force sound into cars so that you can actually hear what's around you. Uh, but I think more than anything else, yes, that, that will be good, but we just have to look. We have to make sure now that we readjust our minds and it's not just listening as a first point of call, it's now looking as a first point of call because you can't trust just going on audible instincts. Right, let me move on. So. Where are we? Okay, just flicking through my notes here. So, um, morning to you both. I got this from Richard. This is very interesting. Richard, thank you for sending this over. This was sent about a week ago, and I've just been flicking through and keeping up to date with how things have gone. It's something that I do not pay enough attention to, and that's car and motorbike auctions. Richard says, morning to you both. Check out the catalogue Ari tomorrow's auction, especially after the cars, and see what the bikes are up to. Uh, so, Richard sent me this over. It's from angliacarauctions.co.uk. Now, it's actually for cars and motorbikes. This, I think, I think it was on the 20th and 21st of August, so around about 10 days ago or so. Have a look at these car auctions and I'll be honest, I have not ever really looked at them, but it's fascinating viewing. I'll try and remember to include a link. The, the reason it's fascinating, especially after the auctions happened, is that you can see what they sold for. So they put the estimate, the auction house, of what they think these vehicles will go for. And then at the bottom, they put the result, what they actually went for, and they share that on the website. This is Anglia Car Auctions from East Anglia east side of England, but these will be all over the place. You know, cars get the headlines because simply they're more popular, but there's a good chunk of motorbikes here, and it has been fascinating, fascinating viewing this morning, having a, a look at what they go for. I could go through the cars, but you know, this is predominantly biking focused, but you know, they've got the lovely, um, the MGBs, the Jags, the, everything, they've even got Ford Transit. But for motorbikes, have a listen to some of this. Let me give you a few examples. Um, I'm going to start with one that I've recently had a, a connection with. Let's go for a 1980 Honda C7 
Honda C70, the Honda Cub. Estimate 1,200 to 1,600 pounds, but it went for 975 pounds. It's a slightly ratty looking one with just basically a bin bag over the seat. So that went for significantly underestimate. But listen to this. There was also a 1983 Honda C50, so a newer model, but a smaller engine. Estimate 1,000 to 1,500 pounds. However, it sold for 2,300 pounds, that Honda Cub. We've then got, let me do two more for you. Honda CB400 from 1977. Lovely classic old Honda with a yellow tank, spoked wheel, single circular headlamp, 400cc of course. Estimate, 2,500 to 3,500 pounds. And it went for 2,700 pounds. This is stunning. Oh, okay. I, Okay, I'll do two more, final two. 1976 Moto Guzzi Nuovo Falcone. Estimate 4,000 to 5,000 pounds. This is a, really an army green, very classic looking bike with two separate seats, spoked wheels, single headlamp, and two pea shooter exhausts, one above the other on the right-hand side of the bike. Estimate four to five K, it sold for 3,600 pounds. That's a very special bike for such a little amount of money and it went for below estimate. And the final one I'll do, very special, 1973 Norton Commando 850cc. Estimate six to eight K, it went for six and a half thousand pounds. You can also get very cool, these kind of, what would you call them? Um, trails bike, old rally type bikes, Suzuki DR400. That sold for £1,296. You can get some really good value stuff here. Yamaha X, uh, YX600, estimate, no reserve, 1990 model, sold for £875. Great, great buys there if you're in the market for, you know, taking a bit of risk and going down because you don't know what you're going to get. You don't know if you're going to win it. Fascinating viewing. I move on to... Oh, now this is interesting. There is, there's a new wave of, uh, of rules, motoring rules and laws coming into play in the UK imminently. In fact, from September, so actually from tomorrow, that things like new number plates. So you're going to have to really make sure that your number plates are the correct size. Otherwise you can get a thousand pound fine. I'll be completely honest, mine are not the right size. I'll may, may chance my luck a bit longer. Um, new clean air zones coming into play in a lot of places. So that basically means that if you've got an older car or motorbike, you may be struggling. For example, in Bradford, up in the north of England, um, HGV drivers will be paying £50 if it's one of the more polluting vehicles. Vans and minibuses will be charged £9. Even taxis, £7. You know, these are coming into play. Listen to this. Clean air zones coming in. 2022 UK. Aberdeen, Glasgow, Dundee, Edinburgh, Newcastle, Greater Manchester, Bristol, Bradford, Oxford. They're coming in all over the place in the big cities. It's, 
it's progressing quite quickly now, this pace of change. You know, it starts in London, as is often the case. It starts in the capital city, and then it spreads out from the capital. The capital is so often indicative of things to come. And these city centres, I can see how, you know, unless you've got the absolute latest, most economical vehicles, it's going to be standard, just standard. Drive into a city, £10. All of the big cities around the country, I can see that happening where it's just standard. Park and ride in, you know, park on the edge of town and have to ride in or, or have to ride in on a bus to get that last four or five miles. I move on. Glenn. Glenn sent me uh, a, an email and this is, this just shows the journey that we sometimes have to go on to to find the kind of bike that suits us. From Glenn. Freddie and Monica. I had purchased a high-powered electric scooter and was looking for some decent riding gear as I didn't want to leave my skin on the pavement at 40 miles an hour. Within a week, myself and my partner had watched God knows how many episodes and decided that the scooter was a mistake and we should get into motorbikes. We booked our CBT course, did it in two weeks, uh, did it, and two weeks later, we are now the proud owners of two Yamaha XSR 125s. I'm generally a happy guy, we've got an amazing relationship, enough of everything that I could ask for, yet I felt there's something missing in my life. The scooter nearly quenched it, but I nearly sold it and went back to how things were before. I'd never considered biking through the retro lens, but the second I sat on my motorcycle, I knew that this was the life I'd been missing. Myself and my partner now have smiles from ear to ear. Uh, so I had a, a chat with, uh, with Glenn on this. Uh, he initially bought an electric scooter, realized it wasn't quite the bike for him, and then realized maybe the modern classic kind of bikes are the kind of bikes for him. Immediately tried that and it was a revelation. It sometimes takes us a while to, to figure out the kind of bikes that we like. I went for a ride to, to Caffeine and Machine and I met a great guy called Danny. He's got the most stunning Harley Davidson Softail, absolute dream machine and repainted in a kind of gunmetal grey type colour, really, really out of this world stunning. And I was chatting to him and he was saying that he initially bought a Triumph Speedmaster and he owned it for three weeks before realising that he was just crashing over every single, just even the most remote imperfection in the road, he'd be crashing over. And it was completely unpleasant. He had it for three weeks and had to sell it because it was so unpleasant. And he bought this Harley Davidson Softail Slim. And I was talking to Danny and I said, you know, I had that bobber for a day in Tenerife and I didn't feel any issues at all with it. For me, it was perfect. But this is the difference where, you know, when you're a bigger guy, maybe a 90 kilo plus guy, that's something I never took into account, into account, or I never knew existed. You know, the, the element of bigger riders, they do sometimes have to buy the bigger bikes because things like suspension, you know, it can go from being very nice suspension for someone like me, you know, 80 kilos, even a bit less, to someone 90 kilos and a bit more, that decent suspension that I found suddenly turns into back-breaking, jarring suspension. 
And I was chatting away and I was saying to Danny that, you know, it took me, it probably took me five years to figure out the kind of bikes that I like, the kind of biker that I wanted to be. And I went through such a journey, you know, Honda CB500F, a commuter bike. Got rid of that after two weeks, realized it's not remotely me. Thought I wanted sports bikes, couldn't afford one, so I bought the next best thing in my mind. Uh, it's funny sports tour, the Suzuki RF600. And then I realized that's not me. And I bought a Triumph Speed Triple. Had that for four years. And that was the first bike I thought, I'm getting there. I'm getting there to, to start to understand. But that was at a stage when I thought I had to, to be a real biker. I had to have a thousand cc engine because that's what you do when you're a real biker and you're experienced. So I got that. And then after four years, I, the business went bad. So I bought a Suzuki Bandit, not through choice, but because I needed something. And then after the Bandit, I, I bought the Bonneville. And that was, I mean, it could even be six, seven years after I passed. And the Bonneville is the first bike I've ever owned where, where I thought, yes, finally, this is it. I remember heading up north to get it, jumping on it the first time. And just the first second I jumped on it, I thought, that's it. That's me. That is me. It's the first bike I've had. And I thought, this is me. This is the kind of biker I am. I finally figured it out. And it's a revelation. And I was talking to Danny about that. And he's still not even sure if he's a cruiser kind of guy. He's now thinking he may be an adventure bike kind of guy or a bit of both. Maybe have an adventure bike and a cruiser. But it takes a while and a lot of the time it can be expensive, but the only way we can figure out the kind of rider we are is by buying different bikes. It's a bit painful, it's a bit expensive, but a lot of people don't get it right first time. I certainly don't. And it's not about getting it right or wrong. It's about enjoying the experience of, of figuring out what kind of rider you are. I move on. Here we go. Okay. Oh, this is, this is just a little retort, a little reply to my electric vehicle segment last week. This is from Chris. Have a listen to this. Hi, Freddie. Just listened to the ed episode and heard the response. I completely agree that manufacturers should be looking to make the electric Bonneville or the electric Sportster. This is from last week. I said, come on, Harley Davidson, Triumph. I'm generalizing here, but we don't necessarily want a hyper sports bike level performance in an electric bike. We, we just want the bikes that we have now, but to be electric, you know, that's it. Don't, you don't need to reinvent the wheel too much. I carry on from Chris. Do you think they might be avoiding doing so, i.e. building an electric Bonneville or an electric Sportster? Do you think they might be avoiding doing so as this would create a one-to-one -one comparison between their internal combustion engine vehicles and the electric vehicle models, which would highlight the EV's shortcomings even further. Or perhaps just because looking at the internal combustion engine models, 9,000 pound price tag versus the EV's 15K plus price tag would cause a, why would I pay almost twice the price for a worse experience sort of moment and hinder the EV's progress more? I think 
car manufacturers have an easier time switching to EV because the vast majority of car owners just want their cars at all to do the job and really don't care about more than having a smooth drive and a comfy interior, whereas motorcycles have always been sold based on their cool factor in the riding experience, which can be the opposite of smooth and efficient, such as the Harley or the Enfield. Do you think electric EV bikes could ever come close to the riding experience of feeling an engine beneath you? Would just adding gears onto electric, uh, onto EV bikes make a huge difference and make it more engaging to ride? Quite a lengthy email, but um, uh, EV bikes just stir something up in bikers' hearts. I hadn't really considered that before. And it makes sense. If you look at the manufacturers, why aren't they coming out? You, you know, if, you, if we look at cars, let's look at cars. Initially, what most of them do, if we discount the Nissan Leaf, or what a lot of them do, look at the VW Golf, for example. Look at the Mini. I could go on and on. What most of them do is they take one of their, their good sellers and they electrify it. They rip out the, the internal combustion engine and they put in an electric motor. They use one of their current models and they turn it into an electric vehicle. Is it the case that motorcycle manufacturers are actually scared to do so for the exact reasons that I've just mentioned from Chris? That they can't quite seem to, well, either get it right or they just know it will not sell. It will tank it will, it will sink immediately the idea if you create an electric Bonneville that maybe won't look as good because motorbike engines are on display. It's hard. It's hard to make them look good. Although I have seen it done with likes of Maving and a oh, Swedish company I've forgotten the name of. Completely forgotten the name. Um, it's harder to make them look good. And if you're looking at, you know, 15 to 20K price tag, with a range of 100 miles, meaning it can only be a commuter bike, nothing else. You know, are we as bikers going to stomach it? Because we buy a motorcycle as a passionate purchase. We're not trying to justify it with common sense. It's a passionate purchase. Are we going to stomach that? How can we justify 15 to 20,000 pounds for something infinitely less practical, less character? You know, we buy it for character, for cool factor. If you're not getting any of that, plus you're not getting practicality, and you're paying double, what's the argument to buy it, other than you're trying to save the planet, which is good, and I'm all for, but that's a, a big statement financially. That's a, it's a lot of money you need to put down on the table to be able to, to promote that planet saving, especially in the, the modern world we're in now. That's, that is food for thought. Thank you, Chris. I'm still actually thinking about that. I read that for the first time a few days ago from you and I'm still, still getting my head around that. I think there may be an element of truth there. This is why the bike manufacturers, we haven't seen one mainstream bike manufacturer, not one, who's just taken one of their standard models, a, a, a good seller, a best seller, and turned it into an electric bike. Not one. 
I move on to the last one of the day, Freddy. And this carries on. Are electric motorcycles having no soul? I think we have to look at the other end of the market from the electric hyperbikes to the likes of Maven. This is uh, a small British brand and they make commuter bikes with, and this is key, a removable battery. I continue. Small, cheeky motorcycles with removable batteries built for town use and nipping to the coffee shop at the weekend. If you reduce the expectations, enjoy the performance, which is more akin to a bicycle than a heavy internal combustion motorcycle, then you can have huge fun. In terms of big bikes and long-range motorcycling, we need the manufacturers to pull their fingers out and actually agree on removable battery standards so that rather than having to plug in and wait for things to charge, we simply ride to the closest battery swap station where, when our batteries get low and grab a fully charged one in exchange. Uh, Alex, I... With motorcycles, I, I really, really agree with you. I think it's all about managing the expectations and I think you're exactly, exactly right. At least for the next few years, you know, electric motorbikes, as they come out, they will not be able to match the, the, the practicality and, uh, and, and ease of use, especially for long distance, that an internal combustion motorcycle can do. So let's change our parameters of what we think these bikes can do. Let's be realistic about it. For city transport, fantastic. And as an idea here, as your idea here, Alex, make it industry standard that these should be removable batteries. And I'm all for this. I think you're absolutely spot on here. Because if a car can do 350 miles, an electric car... A good one, and this is good. I mean, the Mini, I think, is an absolute disgrace. I think it's about 120 miles range, EV. Let's say a good, a good electric motored car, a good one with big range, can do 350, and that's classed as big. But think about how big a car is. They can put all of the battery packs along the floor pan. Motorcycles only have a relatively very small space to be able to fit the batteries. So, so far, I haven't seen anything that can do more than 120 miles. And let's say in reality, actually, because you're going to be doing some motorway riding, I think 100 miles is the maximum at the moment. 100 miles range. So that means it can only ever be a commuter bike. So let's get rid of, rid of any idea for the next maybe even 10 years, five years, of a motorcycle being able to tour, an electric motorcycle being able to tour, because until something drastic happens, not gonna happen. Probably realistically, the only way that it could happen is, is by getting batteries, batteries into all petrol stations for motorbikes. But is that a realistic thing to expect, that petrol stations stock and charge huge amount of motorcycle batteries. I, I cannot see it happening. In theory, it could work and it would be good. You go to a, a petrol station or a charging station, take out your battery from your motorbike and grab another one. I, it, that works perfectly well in theory, but is it going to happen? Are, are petrol stations, charging stations going to be stocking these huge amounts of batteries and are the battery companies going to be providing a huge amount of batteries that can be swapped out. And where will they, you know, is there space in these forecourts to charge, let's say a hundred, 
100 motorcycle batteries in each forecourt. You know, so you pay the person on the service desk and they, they swap the battery and then they put the other battery on charge. I still can't see it happening. I really don't think that that's going to happen. And if that doesn't happen, the problem, Alex, is how is it going to work? Because I agree with you that that seems to be the only real, real idea out there for doing anything like semi-long distance travel on an electric motorbike. Because charging, uh, no, I, I can't see it working with such a microscopically tiny range. It's just not good enough, a range of 100 miles on a bike, because it means you're, you're constantly looking for charging. Every 60 miles you're looking for charging. It's just, it doesn't work. I can't see how it will work. I can't see for the, for the next few years possibly even 10 years, I cannot see how electric motorbikes can be anything other than city commuters. I really can't. I'll end it there on that hugely positive note. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening to this week's episode. Thank you for CISAP for sponsoring this week's episode. I'll speak to you all in the next week's episode. Have have a brilliant week. The weather's still glorious here in England. I'm I think I've got a little ride planned for tomorrow. Just feels so, so brilliant when the weather's so good. It's been the most fantastic summer's biking. So happy riding, everyone. I'll speak to you next week. Mm -hmm.